are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Good morning. I know this is a cold day, but it is a great day. I've invited Dr. David Busick to come and be with us this morning. He served as your pastor here for seven years, went to Nazarene Theological Seminary to serve as the president there before being elected to become one of our leaders in the Church of the Nazarene, one of our general superintendents. As a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene, I feel very good about having men like Dr. David Busick leading our church. So it's odd for me to say Dr. David Busick, so I'll just say David from here on in, okay? I really wanted him to be with us on a special day, and I just thought this would be one of the best attended days all year long, but the weather has gotten a little bit of the best of us. But you are here, and I'm so grateful that David is here. He is one of my very favorite preachers of all the preachers that I know. And so, since there's not as many of you, you've got to really get involved, okay? So we are going to give David a real good BFC welcome. We're glad you're here. Let's make him feel welcome, okay? Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. It's always an honor and a real privilege to get to be here in our home church. And Pastor Rick, thank you for the invitation. This has been a, an interesting week in the life of the Busick family. Our fifth grandchild was born this week. And thank you. That's, it, it's been a good week. But our grandson, Ezra David, was born three weeks early. And as a result, he, there were a few complications. And uh, he spent the first nine days of his life in NICU, which is intensive care for babies. And he wasn't breathing well, and he was uh, dehydrated, and he was jaundiced, and uh, then he couldn't keep his food down, and he couldn't eat, and he went from seven pounds, he dropped a pound and a half in in uh, five days and we were really really worried and we ask you to pray and we ask thousands of people around the church of the nazarene to pray and many of you did and we're so grateful and there was there was a turn that happened almost instantly and he started gaining weight and we thought it was going to be another two or three days but a few days ago they just said we're sending ezra home and so uh here's a picture of ezra and it's good to see him without feeding tubes and things and everywhere. But I show you this not only because he's a, he's a beautiful baby and the Busick name will go on, but also because to identify with Pastor Rick, we decided just for today to shave his eyebrows. So, Rick, we love you. We love you. But thank you for praying, and uh, it's, this is not Christmas Sunday. I'm going to let Pastor Rick preach the Christmas sermon that will happen next week. But it is an Advent sermon, and I want to start out by, by asking all of you a question. Because I saw a, a survey recently that was surveying people from across America who are Christians, and the question was asked, when did you become a Christian? How old were you when you became a Christian? 
Now, I'm not going to assume that all of you here today are believers. Uh, Some of you have been for many years. Others of you are on the way, and we're really, really glad that you're here. But out of curiosity, how many of you became a Christian from the ages of one to four? Would you raise your... uh, Just stand up if you became a Christian from the ages of one to four. Let's see where you are. It'd be easier to see if you're standing. Okay? All right, good. So you can kind of see where people are there. Uh, and you're in, it's actually pretty accurate because uh, from the ages of one to four, how many people in America said they became a Christian? One percent. All right, thanks. You can be seated. That's, that's great. How many of you became a Christian from the ages of four to 14? Would you stand? Okay, look at this. And this also is pretty accurate because, or close because from the ages of 4 to 14, 85% of people became a Christian during that time frame. And that's why things like our kids singing, this, this isn't just because moms and dads like to see their kids up front. 4 to 14 is an extremely important time period for people to respond to Jesus. Thanks. You can be seated. How many of you became a Christian from the ages of 14 to 30? Would you stand? Okay. Now you can see here, anybody want to guess this percentage? It's about 10%, 15 to 30. Thank you, you can be seated. By the way, this is my, this is my age when I became a Christian in that bracket. How many of you became a Christian after the age of 30? Would you stand? Okay. Very interesting. Praise God for that. And that goes from 30 all the way up until, you know, senior adults. You can be seated that comes out to be about 4%. And I'm showing you that because I've been asking myself the question, how far will God go to reach one person? We we know the story of Advent says that that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and we know he, he came for the world, and And he brought salvation to the world. And that's what Christmas is about. But beyond that, I'm asking not just about the world. I'm asking about you. How far will God go to reach one person? So there's a couple of stories in the Bible. And these aren't traditional Christmas texts. But I think they're they're really important stories because they're not just ancient stories for us to look back on and moralize and say, wasn't that great that happened so many years ago? But these are real life stories about real people who had similar situations, who came to Christ at different times of their lives. And as we go through these, we're going to blaze through these very, very quickly. It's going to be fast. And you may want to go back and study this on your own later. But here's what I want you to keep in mind as we're looking at these stories just for a couple of minutes. One, I want you to think about how much God worked to bring this one person to him. All the things that had to come together, all the life situations that had, to, that had to happen in just the right way, and how God orchestrated that. That's the one thing I want you to see. The other thing I want you to see is, is how God used and prepared the Christian to bring the message. It wasn't just preparation of the person who was going to hear the good news of Jesus. It was also about the preparation of the person who was going to deliver the good news of Jesus. Both of them orchestrated, both of them guided by the Holy Spirit. All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me 
And if you don't have your Bibles, what did you think we were going to come here to do? Uh, No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Acts chapter 8 is the first story that I want you to see. These are so fun. If you've never read these stories before, go back and look at them in detail because um, we're going to just scratch the surface of all the detail that's here. But I love the way it tells us how far God will go to reach one person. Okay, so the first one. Let me set the context. Acts chapter 8. Acts, by the way, is after Jesus has come and now he's, he went to the cross, he's been raised again, and now he's ascended back to the Father, and the early church has begun. And we have a story about a man here named Philip. Philip is a believer. He's an evangelist. That means he tells people about Jesus. All of you have are evangelists in some fashion. All of you are witnesses to what Jesus has done in your life. And so here is this evangelist, and he's having this amazing revival happening. There's this outpouring of God on a people of all places but Samaria. Samaria was the least likely place that you would think that an awakening of God would be happening. But here we find in the first part of Acts chapter 8 that hundreds of people are coming to Christ, and there are signs and wonders and and the Holy Spirit's being poured out. And right in the middle of that, when there's hundreds of people coming to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to Philip. Philip, I want you to do something. I want you to do it now. I want you to go to the middle of the desert. I want you to go down the Gaza Highway where there's nothing around. And I want you to do it at high noon. But Lord, look at all of the revival that's happening. Hundreds of... No, no. Timing is critical. Instant obedience. Go now. Philip doesn't argue with this. He, he just leaves what he's doing. He travels. It's like, it's like 30 miles by foot. He goes out into the middle of the desert on the road. There's nobody else out there. And look at what it says. Now we're in Acts chapter 8. And we're in verse 20. Six, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Very specific directions. Don't just go randomly walking outside. Here's where I want you to go. Follow closely. And so Philip started out, and here's here's what I want you to underline in your Bibles. On his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. It's amazing what happens when we're on the way to do what Jesus has asked us to do. Because out there in the middle, there's an Ethiopian eunuch, and it says here that he was an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace of Ethiopia. Candace wasn't a girl's name. Candace was kind of like saying Pharaoh of Egypt. She was Candace of the Ethiopians, that the leader of this nation was a woman, and he was her treasurer. So he's a really important man. And for some reason, he's been on this pilgrimage all the way from Ethiopia down in in Africa. And he's made his way up to Jerusalem because he has a belief in the Most High God. He understands Judaistic teaching, but he doesn't know Jesus. And here he is. He's on his way back. And look at what it says. So this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in the chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet, And the Spirit told Philip, go up to that chariot and stay near it. So the chariot's moving along. Philip's kind of jogging up there. And as he's jogging up beside the chariot, nobody else on the road, he hears this man reading 
from Isaiah 53, which just so happens, coincidentally, it happens to be the story of the Messiah who would come to the world to give salvation to every person. What a coincidence. You know what a coincidence is? A coincidence is God undercover. And so here he is. He just happens to be reading about Jesus. And and then he sees Philip jogging and he says, is there anybody who can tell me what this means? Philip doesn't even have to try this very hard. It's like the guy's asking him questions. And Philip jumps into the chariot. He starts to talk about and tell this man, who is this person who comes to give his life as a ransom for many? And, and if by the end of the conversation, Philip, uh, the, the, the eunuch says, this is what I've been searching for. This is what my heart has been craving for all of these years. This is why I've been milking, making this pilgrimage. And, and he said, is there any reason why I can't give my life to Jesus right now? You talk about a, a, a line, a welcome line. And Philip says, there's no reason why you shouldn't. The man prays to receive Christ, and then all of a sudden, another coincidence happens. You look over there, right in the middle of the desert. Look, there's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized right now? There's no reason why you shouldn't be. And so they get out the chariot. The man's baptized. He becomes a believer. He's filled with the Spirit. And now you have the first Gentile who becomes a Christian... Uh, any person who's not a part of the Jewish tradition, and he is also the first missionary to Africa. How far will God go to reach one person? He'll go so far as to send a man out in the middle of nowhere in the desert in the middle of the afternoon to just orchestrate perfectly a divine appointment with a guy who just happens to be coming back from a pilgrimage, who just happens to be reading from Isaiah 53, who just happens to be seeking Jesus, and who just happens to see water. Next story. We go to the next one. Now we go to Acts chapter 9. These are stories of real people. This is a story about a man who was not seeking God. This is a story about a man who hated Christians. This was a person who was a terrorist. He was a radical fundamentalist terrorist who had a life mission of exterminating Christians. He, wanted, he, was, he was a bloody a pursuer of Christians who's on his way to a place called Damascus, Syria. You've heard of Aleppo in the news? Aleppo, Syria. This is, the, this is the capital of Syria, Damascus. He's going there to kill Christians. His name, by the way, is Saul. You know him as Paul later, but you didn't know there was a Saul to start with, a guy who had no interest in Jesus, who's on his way to kill people who believed in Jesus. And while he's on the way... The light that Kyle was singing about appeared to him on a road. Jesus came to him. The light blazed out of heaven. It was so strong, it knocks him off his horse. Here's Saul, the terrorist, the radical fundamentalist. He's in the dirt. And he says, who are you, Lord? He didn't call him Lord because he believes it's Jesus. He calls him Lord because he, he wants to show respect. And all of a sudden he hears a voice. Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm not persecuting you. I'm just killing Christians. He goes blind. He can't see for three days. They have to take Saul by the hand. They lead him into Damascus. He doesn't eat for three days. He's laying in his bed. He doesn't know what's going on. Meanwhile, there's a Christian who happens to be also in Damascus. His name is a man named Ananias. Ananias was the man Saul was going to find. The Holy Spirit comes to Ananias and he says this, 
I have something I want you to do, Ananias. There's a man here by the name of Saul. And he's lying in a room right now. He can't see. He's not eating. He has no idea what's happening. I want you to go to him. And Ananias says, You mean Saul, the terrorist? Saul, the guy who is coming here to kill me and my family? That's Saul? You want me to go to him? Is this a trap? Jesus said, Obey me, because at this very moment, he is having a vision himself that a man who happened to be named Ananias is going to come to him and tell him what's going on in his life. Um, think about the courage this takes. Ananias goes, think of the worst terrorist in the world right now. Imagine that he's pursuing you, and you have to go tell him about Jesus. This is courageous. Ananias goes, he finds Saul in the bed, he announces why he's come, he said, Saul, I'm here to tell you about Jesus. And God used this divine appointment, this perfect obedience with this, this amazing, provenient moment in Saul's life. And Saul gives his heart to Jesus and becomes the greatest missionary the Christian movement has ever known. How far will God go to reach one person? A long way. Last quick story. Next chapter. This is a man named Cornelius. Cornelius is a centurion, which means that he's, he's a Roman soldier in charge of a thousand other soldiers. He's a big deal. He's in the Roman army. And, and he's a Christ, I mean, he's a God-fearer, which means that he's praying, he's, he's trying to do good things, he's giving food to the poor, but, but he doesn't know Jesus. But he's, somehow he feels like he's being pursued, he's being caught up. And right in the middle of that time, all of a sudden, Jesus comes to him. Again, in a vision. This is what Jesus says, Cornelius, I know you've been seeking me. I know you don't understand, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to send a group of people. There's a man named Peter who's in another town down the road, and, and he's there. He will tell you about me. Go and send people there. Now, Cornelius is a Gentile. Jews and Gentiles don't mix. But there in the other city is Peter, one of the great apostles, He's up on a rooftop. He's praying before dinner one day. And right in the middle of that prayer, he has a vision. And it's a vision of a sheet being dropped down out of heaven. And in that sheet are all of these unclean animals and reptiles and all the things that the Jews thought they were unclean. And they'll separate me from God. And they've been taught all their life, don't do this. This is our tradition. We don't do that. This is our holiness code. And he keeps hearing this voice saying, saying, Peter. Take this and eat it. Take this and eat it. And Peter keeps saying, no, no, no. I've been taught I can't do this. This is unclean. Don't call anything unclean that I have made. And by the way, Peter, uh, there's a group of people coming. Oh, by the way, you hear the knock on the door right now? At that very moment, the people from Cornelius' family have come, and there they are at the door. The Spirit says to Peter, now, I want you to go find out what they want, and I want you to do everything they ask you to do. And here's Peter. This, I can't tell you how big a deal this is. I don't have the time to unravel it all, but I want you to know this is a huge moment in the life of the Christian church because Peter goes with these Gentiles, and he, he gives witness to Cornelius, and Cornelius becomes a believer. And now we have a, a big deal in the Roman Empire who is now an evangelist for Jesus, and we have Peter. How far will God go? He'll go a long way. You want to know what the, the similarity between all of those stories are and the similarity in your life and how God is pursuing you? 
This is about grace. Grace is a word that many of you know in your head, but let me explain to you again what we're talking about because grace is the concept that sets Christianity apart from all other world religions. Grace literally means the favor given to someone who deserves the opposite. So you deserve to be treated one way by God because of all the things that we've done and all the things that we're doing, but God in His grace chooses to treat us in a different way. In fact, Paul, the guy who was Saul, he said one time, God does not treat us as our sins deserve, but He gives us grace, He gives us mercy, which is unconditional favor. It's not based on your performance, it's not based on your behavior. Which means that grace says there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less than he does right now. You can't be a better person. Your behavior can't get better and have God say, I love you more now than I loved you yesterday. Why not? Because God didn't love you based on your behavior beforehand. Why would it change if it got better? Likewise, you can't do a worse thing. And you can't fall off the wagon and have God say, I don't love them the way I loved them yesterday. Why? Because he didn't love you based on your b behavior. So it's not going to change if it gets worse. Now, of course, there's consequences. There's consequences for sin. We all understand that. But it doesn't change the way God sees you. Grace is gift. Grace means free gift. But now we're talking about an aspect of grace that most people don't think about. Because before you become a Christian, there's another way that God intervenes in your life by grace that, that shows you how far God will go to reach one person. And here's what happens. Look at this. Sometimes people will say to me, David, I, be, I came to Jesus back in whatever it is, 1989 at children's camp or at vacation Bible school. Or I came to Jesus here. Listen, I know what they're trying to say. They're trying to say, I, I'll never forget the encounter I had that changed my life forever. I understand. But here's the problem with that. Nobody ever comes to Jesus. Nobody. I didn't come to Jesus. You didn't come to Jesus. You want to know why? You couldn't. The Bible says... You and I were dead in our transgressions. We were dead in our sins. How many know dead people can't respond? How many know dead people aren't even semi-conscious? That means, that it's trying to say that, that we were like dead people walking around. We were zombies because we had a physical form about us, but we had a zero spiritual connection to God. We were dead there. So we couldn't come to Jesus. You can't respond if you're dead. But you know what Jesus did for us when we were dead in our sins? He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And when we couldn't move, Jesus came to where we are. He pursued us relentlessly. He, he kept pursuing us. And he came to where we were right in the middle of all of our deadness. And he, and he put his hand on us. And in that moment of that touch where he came to where you were, what that meant is that it awakened our heart to his activity. It didn't mean we became a Christian in that moment, but, but it became for the first time that our spiritual awareness became open and a light was clear to us. Which, which let me tell you something that's about to blow your mind. 
What that means is that even your ability to say no to Jesus is only because Jesus has given you the grace to do that. You couldn't even respond before. So if you're all resistant, rebellious, and you're, you're running away from Jesus, listen, the only way you can even do that is because he's already come. He's already pursued you. He's already chasing you down. How far will God go to reach one person? He'll go as long as it takes. This is called the provenient grace of God. It's the grace of God that goes before our response. Jesus told stories about this all the time. He said things like this. God, God is like a shepherd that has 100 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. And 99 of them are safe in the pen. And one of them has gotten lost and is out there on its own. And instead of doing the rational thing, which is to say, hey, I've still got 99 sheep. Instead of doing that, he does the irrational thing. This is the God who says, I'm leaving the 99 who are safe, and I'm going to find the lost one who's not safe. I will not rest until they come home. Christianity is the only world religion that tells you this. The Quran says, if you take one step toward Allah... Allah will take two steps towards you. But who's taking the first step? You are. That's not grace. It may be mercy, but it's not grace. Because you're the one who's got to get cleaned up. You're the one who has to kind of climb your way up to God and get yourself in the right position so a holy God will pay attention to you. Christianity says none of that. Christianity says when you are a mess, when you're completely broken down, when you are on your own, and you were completely lost. Jesus kept pursuing you. He kept sending people out in the middle of the desert road. He kept sending people to your room when you were blind and broken. He kept sending people to your house despite what tradition had told them. How far will God go to reach one person? He'll go a long way. That's the reason why we, we show things like well, let me, let me back up and tell you this story. I was in Indonesia. I was in Indonesia a couple of months ago. And I'm sitting there with a group of 25 Nazarene pastors from Indonesia, one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian. 98% of Indonesia is, is Muslim. So it's not just a religion in Indonesia, but Islam is a culture. It's a way of life. It's dangerous to be a Christian. Indonesia is one of the most, it's the, one of the greatest hotbeds in the world for radical fundamentalist training. And here I'm looking at these 25 pastors whose job it is to be a witness for Jesus. And I know that it's illegal to tell people about Jesus. If you're caught proselytizing somebody from the, the Islam faith, you go to prison if you're lucky. Most of the time, it's just you get your head cut off. And so I'm looking at these 25 pastors, and I just ask them the question. I don't understand in America. I mean, this is so different for us. How do you reach people for Jesus? How do you reach out when your lives are at stake by doing it? And they all begin to look around the circle at each other and as if they had a story, a secret that they couldn't, Share with me. And finally, one of the pastors got a smile on his face. He said, David, you want to know how we reach people for Jesus? 
dreams. I said, what do, you, what do you mean by dreams? He said, not hundreds, but thousands of our neighbors are having dreams in the night of the risen Jesus coming to them in a ray of light and glowing white, and he comes to them with such radiant love that they're compelled by him, and they don't know who he is, and they leave their house, and they come and they find us. They go to the holiness people, and they ask us, who is this man who comes to us in the night? Who is this man of radiant love? And he said, if they're asking us about Jesus, we're not breaking the law. How far will God go to reach thousands and thousands and thousands of people? He'll come to them in dreams. That's the reason why when we show the Jesus film, we show that there are hundreds of thousands of people coming to Christ. It's, it's a simple showing of the life of Jesus. And we take these two remote areas around the world, some of the most remote places in the mountains, people who've never had a Bible, people who've never heard the name of Jesus mentioned. And we show this film with Jesus film team members. And this hasn't happened once or twice. It's happened dozens of times. Right in the middle of the film, the chief will stand up and say, stop the film. We know who this man is. 100 years ago, a man came to our chief in the night. He came to, in a vision, and he announced himself, and, and our chief has been telling us about a man that would come to us one day in the same way. We've been waiting for him to come, and we didn't know his name until today. But now we know his name is Jesus. Thank you for coming and telling us who he was. And the whole tribe becomes a Christian. That's not just about missionaries going. That's about the Holy Spirit working in advance. That's about the pursuing love of God. How far will God go to reach the most remote place in the world? He'll send a person in a vision a hundred years before, and he'll, he'll keep faithful missionaries coming. I have a friend. His name is Stefan. Stefan was an atheist. He was, he was studying robotic science in, in, a play, in, a, in a German university. He's not even... He was so atheistic. And, and he, here he was, this young college student, and his atheistic uncle comes to him and he says, you know what? I just saw the best movie. You ought to see this movie. It's called The Mission. Go and watch it. So Stefan, my friend, the atheist scientist, he goes and he, he rents, this is back when we had VHS tapes. If, if you're under 30, you don't know what I'm talking about. But but he rents this movie and watches the mission. And, and he's, he's captivated by that scene, you know, where Robert De Niro's climbing up the mountain. He's got all the sins on his back, uh, the sins as a slave trader. And he's going up to the very Indians that he had been coming and stealing people to send into the slave world. And, and, and he's crawling up that mountain. You remember that scene? And he gets to the top of the mountain and he's muddy, he's been fallen, and here's all this weight of his sin on his back. And one of the Indians of some of the people that he has taken their family away, they rush up to him with a knife and put it up to his neck as if he's going to cut his throat. But instead of cutting his throat, this man is no longer driven by vengeance. He's driven by forgiveness. And he cuts the rope instead, and all of the sins of Robert De Niro go bouncing down the side of the mountain. And remember how emotional that was? De Niro starts just sobbing uncontrollably 
And then he enters into the life of that Catholic community. And, and he begins to live life with the missionaries and with the people. And, and, and here's what happens in the middle of that movie. Stefan, my friend, they start to quote uh, these sayings in the background. And Stefan said to me later, I've never heard something so poetic and so beautiful. And he was so captured by the words that they were speaking there that he, he decided to do some research. Listen to this. He goes to the library. The internet was only just getting started. He, he, he takes the VHS tape and he keeps rewinding it back to that scene until he's written down every word. And then he goes to the library and he, he tries to find out the source of these words. And he finds out they're words from the Bible. And he's never held a Bible in his hands before. Right there in a public library, Stefan, this research scientist who's an atheist, he starts reading, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not hold grudges. He's reading from 1 Corinthians 13. He memorizes it. The atheist. The next day, he gets an invitation to go to a club from a girl in a school. He says, you want to go to a club tonight? He says, yes, he had a crush on the girl. And so they go to the club. It turns out to be a Bible study. She tricked him. And he said, I was really interested in the girl, and so I just kind of stayed at the Bible study, and they started to teach the Our Father prayer. You know what the Our Father prayer is? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And they they, they helped us to memorize it. And he said, I was a scientist. So I, I started to do some research, and I noticed that every time I'd go home and I would pray the Our Father prayer before I went to bed, I would sleep better. I, w- I wouldn't be as fitful at night. And every time I didn't pray the Our Father prayer, uh, I would sleep badly. And so he said, I started to pray it, and I started to think it. And over the course of time, Stefan puts his faith in Jesus. And listen, how far will God go to reach one person? How far will he go to reach an atheistic scientist? He'll bring a Hollywood movie called The Mission who has impeccable acting and beautiful scenes and he'll use that to put a Bible in his hand and a person to witness to him. And today, my friend Stefan is a missionary in the Church of the Nazarene. He's now the education coordinator for the entire region of Eurasia. What are you trying to talk about? I'm telling you, God will go to any lengths to reach one person. My dad was a foster care kid. His dad died when he was 10 years old. From the age of 10 to 18, he lived in nine different foster care homes. He was a lost kid. He was failing school. He had physical challenges. And right in the middle of that, the second to the last home he went to was a Nazarene family who started caring about what was happening to foster kids who didn't have parents. They took him into their home, and for the first time, he heard the good news about Jesus for the very first time. And he put his faith in Jesus because he said, if this is true, this is the best news I've ever heard. And God changed his life. He came to a place called Bethany, Oklahoma, and he raised his family here. And he changed the trajectory of our entire legacy for the rest of our lives. Why did that happen? How far will God go to reach one lost 17-year-old boy? He'll raise up a foster care family and intersect his life and introduce him to Jesus. I didn't become a Christian until I was, I was 19 years old. Now, I probably had, I had times where I believed and all of that, but I started to kind of fall away when I was in high school. 
And, and I was married already. I got married when I was 18. Don't recommend that. It's the grace of God. But, but you know how God reached a kid who'd grown up in a church home, who'd been hearing all the Bible stories, but who was literally running as fast as I could away from the church? You know what God did to reach him? He raised up four men in his home church, right over here, Williams Church at 50th and Rockwell. Four men said, would you like to gather? Let's gather together every Wednesday morning before we go to work, and we're going to pray for one hour every Wednesday for the sole purpose of praying for the salvation of David Busick. And for months, they met every, day, every Wednesday before work, and they prayed just for me. I, I, I was caught. I couldn't run away from that. How far will God go to reach one scared 19-year-old kid who was losing his marriage? He'll raise up four godly men who will pray him into the kingdom. The hound of heaven. That's how the old-timers used to call it. The, the Spirit will pursue you. One last story. My wife, Christy. She was not raised in a Christian home. She's raised in a moral home, a good home from parents who loved her, but they never went to church. Christy didn't have any Christian background at all, but she felt this ache in her heart. She felt this drawing. God kept pulling her and drawing her. And she was not a lost kid in the sense of lonely. I mean, she was a cheerleader. She, she had a lot of friends. She was popular, all that stuff. And I tell you that not because I'm bragging on her, but I want you to know she wasn't just a lonely kid out there, but she was a, she was a person that God was drawing. And, and she had such a hunger in her heart that she would come home from school and she'd go and she'd take the King James Bible, the token King James Bible in their home, and she would take it to her room every night before she went to sleep and she'd read from Lamentations or, or whatever it was, didn't understand what she was reading. And then she would just pray, God, if you're real, please bring someone into my life that can teach me how to know you. She prays this prayer. This 16-year-old girl, she prays this prayer night after night after night. Doesn't even know if anything's working. One morning on the 4th of July, when she was 16 years old, she woke up, and the way she tells it, she had this strong impression. She didn't know then it was the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus drawing her. She had this strong impression, and this is what she heard. Today, you will meet someone who will answer your prayers. They will introduce you to me. Wow. She has no idea what this means. She and her family are going to an Oklahoma City 89ers baseball game to watch the fireworks. And about the seventh inning, another 16-year-old punk kid walks up to her, also 16, and says, Hi, I'm David. What's your name? She said, I'm Christy. And then I said, where do you go to church? She said, I don't go to church. Now, before you give me one ounce of credit for that and think I was some super spiritual guy, my motives were all wrong in that moment. <laughs> I had zero spiritual interest in Christy. In fact, I was not even a Christian myself. Think about this. My, so God, how far will God go to reach a 16-year-old girl who has a hunger in her heart? He'll use a kid with raging hormones <laughs> to say, would you like to go to church with me? And God answers her prayer. This is not about David. 
This isn't even just about Christy. This isn't about my dad. This isn't about Stefan. This is about a God who will relentlessly pursue you, who will never give up on you, who will keep calling you. How far will God go to reach you? All the way from heaven. The king of the universe will become an embryo. And a conception will happen in a 16-year-old girl. And the Son of God will come. My brother and sister, some of you have family members that you have been praying for and you've been saying, God, I just, I've almost given up hope. Listen, you're not working solo. God is pursuing them. He's way out ahead of you. He will never let them go. He just wants to use you in obedience to help those divine appointments to happen. And there's a few of you here even this morning. You, you've been pursued. All of you have. And you look back over your life and, and you start to look in the rearview mirror and you can see what that... I see it now. God was there and God was here and he brought this person into my life and this circumstance happened. And it's not always been a good thing, but God's been working in all of that. And now I know. He's, he's awakened my heart. And you have a response to make today. And the response is, are you going to say yes? You're not coming to Jesus. He's coming to you. All you have to do is say yes. Will you bow your heads with me, please? Pastor Rick's going to come and lead us in a time of prayer. Pastor. Wow. Don't you love David? Aren't you grateful for this message? So I want you to focus with me for 30 seconds here, okay? If... If that is your story, if you're saying, I, I'm not where I should be in my relationship with God. Maybe even if you would say, I'm, I'm running like David was. I mean, I'm, I'm running. But here's what I know right now. Today, David Busick, you know, he, he truly travels the globe preaching Jesus. But today, God brought him here. How far would God go for you? I mean, God brought him here with this message. And, and maybe you're saying, Rick, as, as well as I know my name, I know that Jesus has come to me this morning. I mean, Jesus is here. Jesus is talking to me. Jesus is drawing me. We're going to stand in a moment. We're going to receive communion together. But if you want to come here to the altar, we will serve you here. And we will pray with you here. And so if you want to respond to Jesus this morning, this is the time to do it, okay? If you want to come and pray for a family member, somebody you love, that you've been praying for, come and pray for them. You're welcome to do that. We will serve you here. Pastors will be all around, and they will get to you here. For any reason you need to pray, 
feel free to come. Let's stand together. Would those of you who are going to service do so now? Pastors, come, will you, and gather with these people who are here. Just come down and make sure everyone has somebody to pray with them. So when Jesus was with his disciples, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Take it.
to receive this blessing today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May his countenance turn towards you and give you peace. You are dismissed. Have a great day. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.